Up next on episode 81 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the value of Deep Blue, the five whys process, and whether programmers should blog from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, it's podcasting with Joel and Jeff. Hey, podcasting. Did I tell you we got a new espresso machine in the office? Uh, it's a, let's see. Sh- it's a, a uh, wait, I'm telling you about the new espresso machine in the office. It's amazing. It's like this industrial strength thing. It's a Lamarck, it's the kind that Starbucks used to have before they um, replaced them with a the big, big kind that just has one big push button that says, make bad coffee. Right. I see you've been imbibing. Well, I have to practice. I have to improve my latte art skills, which yes. are non-existent. But I'm told yes. that after about 700 or 800 lattes, I will, I will be able to make a, a flower <laughs> or a leaf. Uh, yeah, uh, coffee art. Coffee, latte art. It's on the, it's, it's on the surface of the, of the coffee. Very cool. They must have a bunch of those places in uh, in uh, in your side of the woods in the East Bay that like around Berkeley that that do nice lattes. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really art. a coffee person, so it's hard for me to say. Although there are a lot of coffee joints, I think there are everywhere now, but certainly here. Yeah. So I uh, I saw a really interesting article. Uh, did you see that checkers is now a solved problem? Oh, I, I thought have... it always was. No, 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 no. This is. Oh, no, you're right. This is not new. This is, this, the value of dates on articles. So as of 2007, so this is just new to me. <laughs> oh, that's actually, I, I, thought it, I, thought it's been, I thought it was like tic-tac-toe in the sense that, because there are just, they're just not that many possibilities with checkers. You get yourself into a situation where you can't move. And well, there's it's not, like not that many. It's a relative term. There's 500 billion billion. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And they che- so it by solved, until... it means they check them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They can mathematically prove that this program, Chinook, uh, a Canadian program, uh, can never lose. Uh, <laughs> it's a really neat article. I'll obviously put it in the show notes. I, I, it, never, yeah, I, I thought never it was lose at checkers. I've known this since I was a kid. Well, there's this guy in the article, uh, Dr. Tinsley, who was the world checkers champion for the longest time. Mm-hmm. He only lost seven times since 1950 ever. <laughs> and, and, and two of those were to Chinook. Uh, although, unfortunately, sadly, he died before Chinook. Chinook sort of slowly improved over time, and they weren't able to improve it until, uh, sadly, he uh, succumbed to cancer. But it's a, kind of an interesting little story. And then when he died, what, what did the obituary say? Did it say Chinook won and then this guy zero? <laughs> no, he never played. He, he beat Chinook the time they played. But... Chinook victorious was the headline. Yeah, I think that was like, it says here, 92. <laughs> so, Yeah. Well, because I, I there was a you, you remember when you went to the computer history museum? I don't know if they yeah. saw the chess exhibit there. They're right. actually doing some giant renovation there, by the way. So it's going to be even more awesome. Oh, uh, yeah, I haven't. They promised any... us another big room full of old computers, in addition yeah. to the awesome room full of old computers that they already have. 
Well, they had a chess exhibit there, and I was I was looking at the chess exhibit, and I was I was curious because I had written an article about sort of the current state of uh, uh, chess computer programs and how good they were versus you know masters, grandmasters, whether they were actually unbeatable. And mm-hmm. I found it was actually surprisingly close. There was a lot of people. This is like, geez, I haven't looked again, but it was like a year, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some programs that people were saying that effectively were unbeatable. That it was real close to being computers versus man was kind of done. <laughs> Even in chess, wow. which is, you know, yeah. I mean, it's not Go where there's like, you know, an infinity of moves, apparently. I think the computers versus man, I I personally have been completely defeated by <laughs> by my computer many, many, many times. I, I would yeah. say even the device drivers for, for, for audio cards on my, on my main desktop have, have defeated me in, in a way that I feel like I will never again be able to use Skype on my main computer. You know, it's really embarrassing, Joel. Sometimes Macs defeat you. Yeah. No, 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 no. Come on. I can, I can. That's just like getting beaten up by a girl. You just, you just, the Mac, you just slap it around a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was surprised though, because I thought chess would last longer. I thought it would be quite a while before computers were definitively. It is pretty complicated. Now, now Go is worse, right? Go is going to be much harder. Go, I I don't think they're ever going to be able to do because the moves are just like, the the movement space is so enormous. Right. Uh, But you figure checkers was the easiest, and that, that was solved. Mathematically solved in 2007, they can prove that. Well, it I saw tic tac toe with just paper and pencil. Yeah, <laughs> uh, an and then chess. I, I don't think they'll ever be able to prove it. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, in in practice, like de facto, uh, I think the programs are good enough now that even grandmasters do not reliably win against the computers anymore. Right, right. After, of course, the deep blue. That was a a big, a big thing. It was kind of cool to see the deep That's blue hardware. Amazing. Yeah. Well, the, uh, oh. And that uh, and the deep blue hardware nowadays is like you know what, what your what your watch has or like that uh, the iPod. No, or... it's it's not quite that bad because it was it was dedicated hardware. It was designed to do just chess moves, so it was actually pretty efficient. Seriously? Uh, yeah, I mean it was it was like DSPs that they had programmed um, in a very particular way. So That's I think funny. now CPUs beat it, but it took a while. It was actually really really nice hardware that they set up. I mean it was very impressive from a technical standpoint. There's how many moves it could do, and can you imagine there was a time when IBM would just spend money on something like that just because it made them look cool, <laughs> or basic? Maybe it was basic reach. You know what it probably was? It was probably that they still had a little bit of lingering 1960s, where they sort of felt if we can just make computers cooler, then people will buy more computers, and since we sell all the computers that are made, we'll make more money. Like that well, was Deep probably Blue, their Deep Blue was a big deal. I mean, that was sure. that captured the imagine. I think that totally worked. If that was but the what goal, was the business think, case for IBM? I'm asking. Oh, well, just publicity. But uh, you yeah, know. and I think it was a really cool kind of publicity, though. I actually kind of wish there was more stuff like that. I think it's sort of like these things Google does now that are like, well, let's make a phone and give it away for free, and let's have a really good browser on there because that'll increase the amount of time people spend going to the internet, and and eventually we'll make money because the more time people spend on the internet, the more time they spend going to Google. Not quite as much of a spectacle, though. You know, it's not like man versus machine doesn't have the same... I agree that it's in the same ballpark. I understand that Eric Schmidt no longer has a human brain. (laughs) The other two... I uh, think you're confusing it with that show Futurama at this point. (laughs) I think you're sort of projecting it into the fantasy realm. Every once in a while, I'll see a a tweet from somebody. Not that I look at Twitter, and I can't wait till it goes away, but I'll see a, a Twitter, Twitter tweet from somebody saying, uh, uh, oh, my God, Jeff and Joel are so stupid. Their show, they got everything wrong. 
and you well, know, I did, there's well, no, okay. there's no there's no time on Twitter to explain why or to actually have a debate over the merits. But what what what, what the reason I'm commenting on it is 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 I can't believe that they have any expectations of what they expect. We set out to get everything wrong. We 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 don't know what we're talking about here. None of this well, is researched. Uh, I wouldn't say that's entirely true. We're just shooting the breeze. Uh, I, I do feel a little bit bad because the Git conversation was didn't didn't really go anywhere useful. <laughs> I think it sort of did. What we we didn't there was a little bit after we we hung up where we talked about. Oh, sorry about well, that. Well, oh, there we go. Everybody fill that out on podcast bingo. We've talked about Twitter. What have we done, Joel? We've talked about Twitter, and we got the Check. noise of me playing the random my Joel iPod. sound that has to occur sometime in the podcast. I can't I help it. I have my show. computer sound channeling into the podcast, and now I can't well, delete it because we talked about it. Yes. Normally, I just delete it. If you if you just if you just let it go, I delete it and never cause. Um, well, one thing I do want to clarify on the Git conversation. So, first of all, I didn't really mean to piss anybody off. I mean, I, I do think what they've done with the GitHub service is cool. It's just I, I had kind of a negative reaction to it. In terms yeah, of, you were saying specifically. You said something very very specific, which is that all the people that 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 clone on there that could theoretically be making changes, they they all look equal, and so there's like 800 of them. And they really should well, have an apparently option. There's, well, there's fork versus clone, and it has to do with whether you've checked stuff back in. Right. But it's apparently, I mean, this is the part of the, I'm, what I'm trying to say is the whole thing is just kind of confusing. And you could say, okay, sure. it's just fundamentally confusing. You have to be really smart to figure it out. And I just am not confident that the, the average developers are going to be able to, to, to figure this out. They I mean, will eventually. And it looks good. And I mean, there's, I think there's got to be a, a better. Well, here's what we figured out after after the podcast last week. We figured out that the idea is when you think about the way that Linux kernel development works, the idea is that there's uh, Linus at the center, and he's got his lieutenants who have the ability to check things in in certain areas, and they have their trusted lieutenants, and there's sort of increasing concentric circles of trustedness. And if you're nobody out, you know, in the periphery, you're certainly welcome to submit a patch, and it gets reviewed by somebody kind of peripheral, and if they like it, they'll push it up, and eventually it'll make it back towards the middle uh, where it actually becomes a part of, of sort of legit Linux. And sometimes it works the other way where somebody in the middle is looking for a patch that fixes a particular problem, and they'll sort of dip their toes out into the periphery looking for people that might have patches that fix this, this particular problem that they're interested in, and then they'll, they'll pull those in themselves. And that is kind of what Git is trying to capture, or GitHub is trying to capture with that network view. They're trying to kind of show you that a little bit in a way that they imagine this would be the perfect view if you're one of those lieutenants or if you're Linus to see what kind of stuff do my lieutenants have that I might want to pull in uh, or, or might not. Well, and I think this is a good way to look at it because I hadn't really seen it this way until you mentioned that. But, you know, the sub the subtitle of GitHub is literally social coding, which uh, mm-hmm. kind of follows with what you're describing where you have people that you trust. Those right. people have code timelines. Yeah. And you would only care about those people. All the other people doing work would just be like ignored. You just unless you actually, it. unless they did something that you might want. So the idea of having all the stuff be public is actually a little bit useful. Like let's say that you go to GitHub and you find some project and it works beautifully and you love it and you're trying it and you suddenly discover that with Vietnamese characters it's just a complete disaster. So you do a quick search on Vietnamese characters and you find some guy out in the middle of nowhere that has actually written a patch that fixes this and everybody's ignored him because they couldn't care less. But you can go take that patch. But how would you find it though? Let's say there's search. It's 
fairly there's all active. kinds of search search capabilities. Search are there for not what? Fix my bug? Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of browse around, and I mean, that, sometimes it's a hard problem, but sometimes it's just a a matter of like, oh gosh, he's using the API foosbat. So if I actually grep on the word foosbat and I find some guy that's got that word in his check-ins, in his commits, I can go look at those and say, aha, oh look at that, he's thought about this issue, or, or in, the, in the logs. So yeah, you may not know, but you, you may. It may be kind of helpful for you. So why not just give you all that interesting work that people are doing with this idea that most of the stuff that people are doing is scratching a private itch and that there maybe never will, you know, may, maybe some of that will never make it into a canonical version, but a lot of it maybe will. Uh, and then the other thing people pointed out, which uh, I kind of knew about in the back of my mind, but because I'm actually not the owner of the WMD new, uh, the the right. GitHub WMD project, it's actually Dana's the owner. Right. Uh, but there I is a patch queue. Yeah. yeah. So well, there's a queue where if you have a, a a a fix that you think is really good, you can sort of nominate it to be pulled back in. And that goes into this sort of queue. Where the um, so there is a process for nominating code that you think is really awesome or fixes some really heinous bug that needs to be fixed. You can sort of push that into the queue, and that goes into the project owner's sort of yeah. notify queue of things they could potentially work with. Right. So there, there, is, there, there is some provision for, for dealing with this. But I think what really kind of bugged me more than anything else is really two things. One is I think I'm more of a command and control <laughs> kind of project manager. Like I don't really want to see what other people are doing unless... It's really, really good. Right. Like the fact that it even exists, I'm kind of a deletionist. Like, I didn't want to see it. I mean, you can do whatever you want. I mean, if it's open source, absolutely do whatever you want. I just don't want to see it. But at one of those all. days you're going to say, you know what? I hate the way that WMD requires you to have two spaces at the end of the line to make it be a break and to make a line break. And I'm sure somebody's got a patch for that. And you'll just sort of, you know, hover your mouse around on that little project where 18 people have contributed. And you'll just find somebody else that has that patch. And you'll be like, you know what? I'm taking this patch. And then the other thing, there, there's some benefits potentially, surely. And then the other thing I kind of object to is, let's say, theoretically, Stack Overflow is up there. Not that it would be, but let's say it was for the sake of just fantasy discussion. The first thing somebody's going to add is a friends list, which I vehemently disagree with. And that, I have no choice but to allow that fork to be attached to my timeline, even though I vehemently disagree that this is in any way what Stack Overflow is about. Mm -hmm. So stuff can get checked in that'll be on the timeline, even though I never accept it. It'll show up as fork, and potentially maybe it'll get really popular. Who knows? People are like, I love a friends list. This is all about hanging out and being buddies, and yeah, I don't know, eventually well, you can't it's just stop contorted. people from having their own ideas. Well, I can't stop them, but, uh, but if, if, the truth if it is, was a more command and control model, I wouldn't have to see their code at all. It really kind of is, because, I mean, how, much, how many people are running non-standard versions of Linux? And, and that's the most popular open source product. Or like Chrome or Firefox. There's billions of people that have all kinds of you know, weird versions that do slightly different things. You know, they got Flock. And, and uh, uh, it, it doesn't really matter because don't forget, I mean, these are, these are just a bunch of volunteer developers. And what's actually interesting is people using the code and what they choose to take. And the vast, 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 vast majority of them are not going to think about it at all, and they're going to want to take the most canonical thing they possibly can, i.e. the main trunk. Right. Anyway, we've talked and, about this way uh, too much. we really got to kill well, this. Before, before we end big. it, and one thing that gets troublesome is when you have a project that doesn't have good parenting because you know Dana wasn't around, I wasn't around, you lose track of the main fork. Sure. The very thing that you would want, the one thing that you would want is, okay, just give me the current version, even if it's three years old, whatever like was the official thing. That gets completely lost. It in does. The noise. It's not it the does. top thing. It's not always a top thing. No, 
Well, because there's other timelines that are going much further. So then you start to go, hmm, well, that's a really old timeline, which is true. Bad parenting. But the timeline is just one interface. I mean, there's a million other interfaces in github but just even trying to figure out like which one's the right one becomes a nightmare i mean that's that's it sort of makes okay bad situation worse that, if you that, work for github fix this for us please thank you next <laughs> <laughs> right well I, I just wanted to clarify because i feel like people got really upset about that that's the that github is kind of like a sacred cow in some in some corners and uh for anyone to to well cast your heart's are people's it. feelings uh speaking of careers technical yes. careers Somebody came up to me at JFK today and said, are you Joel Spolsky? He's like, I really, I love Stack Overflow and I love careers. It's really helped me. Really? So I just want to say that people are walking up to me at this point, walking up to me to say that careers is awesome. So if you, dear listener, do not have your CV on careers yet and you see me at JFK, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? You're going to be like, this Joel Spolsky. I wish I could go up to him and say that careers really helped me, but I didn't even put my CV up. You should, you should say Wasabi sucks when you see him. Yeah. I'll just punch you in the face, even before you get to the socks. <laughs> <laughs> I follow uh, the Jason Calacanis principle. It's like, before the last syllable is out of your mouth, I have punched you in the face. <laughs> I, uh, I did post some career uh, success stories on the blog, which I will link to. Uh, and I actually got at least one on Twitter that was really nice, where somebody, and I'll have to look this up, was saying, hey, two of my friends had a really good experience with careers. So cool. uh, I, I think you know, this was an experiment. Right, and I think a lot of people were concerned because they're like, "Well, this you know, you're charging people to to, to list their CV right. uh, for the private employer search." Although there is a you know a free public component to it, the employer search is, is a nominal fee. That's weird. Um, are you even going to get any traction? Are there going to be enough employers? Um, and we also have data. Uh, another thing we did is we we dump sort of the top in uh, queries by country, by location, and by tag. So you can sort of see what's actually happening in the system. This is actually live data. So if you're curious about, well, are there any employers and what are they looking for? Uh, if you start a CV, which again is free, you'll have access to the same stats as everybody else, showing you what the actual searches are. Right, and, searches are yeah. And and you know, it's not just Joel saying this because you know Joel obviously hires and actually Stack Overflow is hiring too, which I should probably talk about. <laughs> uh, but it's not just us. I mean, it's it's we're actually getting some nice employers and. Uh, some really good stories, uh, success stories from people that are actually using it. And, you know, the goal is to find a programming job that's fulfilling where people actually care about the code that you're writing and, you know, you're building something useful for somebody. I mean, we do have some international searches too, even though we sort of, um, it's actually kind of interesting to see there's a bunch of searches in Mexico, Spain, Czech Republic, Germany, Norway, Australia, Italy, Portugal. Probably not so many, but they're, but they're there. Uh, it, the one thing you have to bear in mind is we're never going to be monster or dice. That's just not going to happen, right. in my opinion. I mean, we might get to a decent, like a bigger than we are now. It's growing, obviously. Uh, but it's just never going to be that kind of service. It's it's meant to be, you know when you buy concentrate juice? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get like a giant container of juice. You're going to get really highly concentrated juice. Uh, but yeah. the advantage is, you know, it's it's really concentrated. I mean, we're we're trying to build a list of people that, you know, really care about this stuff. And employers that value Programmers who really care about the craft of programming right. versus the average dice job, which is for some, you know, insurance company in in, in Iowa. It's <laughs> interesting to see, in Iowa. Uh, it's interesting to see the tags that that employers are searching for because it's almost what you'd expect: C sharp, C Java, Python, .NET, Linux, ASP .NET, JavaScript, SQL, PHP, jQuery, C, HTML, Unix, CSS. Those are that's almost exactly what you would expect as being the popular. Although actually, I wouldn't expect Python to be so high compared to like PHP and 
Ruby's not even in there, so not a lot of Ruby. But um, what what's uh, uh, yeah. But what well, here's something you should do if you're an employer, if you're actually searching for people. Um, look for there's a few keywords that you can search for, not because you need to recruit people that have those keywords, but because the people with those keywords on their resume are actually usually you know head and shoulders above the rest. So like I like to search for OCaml, Lisp, Haskell, ML. Um, F sharp, uh, closure. Not that I'm ever going to let anybody work in any of those languages, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, but because those usually reflect people that are interested in new languages, that have some um, extensive computer science background, it's just usually kind of a, a good sign uh, of being a, a developer that's kind of at a higher level. And, and uh, it's just a neat search algorithm that I use because I personally don't care what languages somebody's programmed in um although we prefer to see some c uh we don't really that's not really a requirement when we hire someone right you just got to be smart and get things done those are the two requirements speaking of smart and get things done if you're smart and get things done and you're listening to this we're trying to hire a tester and i was i was just talking about this right before the podcast uh like how do you how do you hire testers what's a good software tester how do you and mm-hmm. you can sort of – the trouble is that most of the best testers did not grow up saying, I wish I was a software tester when I grew up. I want to be a software tester. <laughs> it's one of those jobs. Actually, like salesperson. Uh, salesperson is the same thing. Nobody grows up thinking they want to be a salesperson, but they fall into it somehow. Everybody has a different story for how they got into sales, and then they just discover that they love it. And I think it's uh, something very, very similar happens with testing. And the algorithm that t- – I, I don't want to be – ultra cynical, but I think the algorithm that Microsoft uses to hire testers is if you fail the developer interview, they make you an offer as a you know, software developer in test, S-T-E-T, which is uh, a little bit un- unfortunate because they've sort of established this rule that a tester is a not very good programmer who's been put into that category. And w- what, I, what I've actually found, I've found a lot of great testers are the kind of people who never thought to be programmers. You know, maybe they took a programming class, but it just did not really appeal to them. Uh, they, um, um, but they sort of love technology. You know, they're sort of like the, the geeks, geeks. They love, you know, buying the latest thing and setting it up. And, and some of the skills that you might think are associated with testing, like uh, attention to detail and that kind of stuff, um, you know, they're sort of prerequisites, but it's almost hard to search for those. Uh, if you know what I mean, like, like, what, what, what would you say? Like a traditional testing skill, you would say, you know, you, you love to break things. You know how to find when things are broken, and 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 you you know when something's not straight. You can immediately you walk into a room, and if there's a set of encyclopedias on the bookshelf, and num- volume eleven and volume twelve are flipped, you just instantly notice that, and it drives you crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- al- although that's true. I don't think that there are these people, there are people going around there saying it drives me crazy when encyclopedias are not in alphabetical order when they're searching for jobs. I don't even, I don't even know where, where, where these, what, what these people are doing. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're one of these people, not a programmer, uh, love software, want to work at Fog Creek, um, we need some testers, so submit your resume to jobs at um, foggreek.com. Yeah, well, I think we've had some... Questions. Uh, we had a good question about testers versus developers on a previous podcast. I'll have to link that in the show notes. Dig it up. Okay. Because yeah, I think I we kind of riffed on some of the same themes about what makes a good tester, what makes a good programmer, and how they're similar yet different things. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I don't and know that they're interchangeable. Like what's interesting these. is that some of the best testers that I've seen were pulled into the job. Actually, almost all of the best testers that I've seen were at some point told, "Hey, would you like to be a tester?" You know, somebody else recognized that they had that kind of innate talent, and they were and and, and they never would have thought that they would have wanted to do that, and then they loved it. Right. Okay. Anything else new this week? Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about the five whys. Oh, five whys. Oh, yeah, there was some kind of a, you had some kind of a, uh, Yeah. You know, well, had, I actually have a little bit of a beef with five whys, because I don't feel, <laughs> I actually opened, okay, so the, the, the crux of five whys was, you know, getting to the root, the really root, root, root of a problem. Like, because there are human beings on the earth, we have problems. You know? <laughs> well, no, that would be, that would be nine. Yeah. It depends how many whys you want to go to. But You've got to you stop ask at enough. five, because otherwise you get to because there are humans <laughs> on a <the> planet. <laughs> why are right. we in business at all? Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, why, it becomes very metaphysical. So to avoid that, you limit yourself to five. But I have a little bit of a beef with the five whys, because at first, I... I think we had the same problem in Five Wise, which was the the root of it was uh, this auto negotiation that goes on between network switches and network cards. Of you know, is it gigabit? Is it you know, uh, right. uh, fast Ethernet or Ethernet? I guess those are the three yes. levels. So let me just uh, to recap for our for our for our listeners: uh, when you set up networking equipment, um, it can be set either to a particularly particular speed. Every port can be set to you know 100 megahertz or a gigahertz or whatever the different options are. Um, or you can tell it to auto-negotiate. And experienced network administrators know that auto-negotiate sometimes mysteriously fails with certain regularity, causing you to get a slow network link where you wanted a fast one. And so it's almost sort of standard operating procedure for a, for a very experienced network administrator to go on and set all their ports manually uh, to use the higher speed instead of having the auto-negotiate. Right. And right. and yeah. so th- when you asked the five whys, you were getting to like, how can we prevent this in the future, you know, get to the root cause. That's, right. that's the point of the five whys. The point of the five but, whys is that you don't just say, oh, look, my network became super slow because this thing auto-negotiated wrong, so I'll just set it. The point became, how do you prevent this from ever happening again on new equipment, on existing equipment, on this equipment? Like, what's, what, what procedures don't you have that would have prevented this and will prevent this in the future? But I think with the five whys, you actually didn't go deep enough with your whys because even we were a little nonplussed by this because we think we're diagnosing some other issues, but as part of the normal troubleshooting, we think it's a a good idea to try this. Um, But when I posted it on server fault, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about whether it actually does make sense to fix this or make it be auto because a lot of times what they're saying, and I kind of agree with this now after reading all the responses on server fault, and it, it kind of illustrates the value of server fault, where you have something that people don't agree on. I mm-hmm. mean, there's actually disagreement on this topic. And uh, I, I tend to agree that if, if auto isn't working, it's symptomatic of other problems that you should be looking at, which is the whole point of the, the whys, right, is to get to these other deeper problems. Mm-hmm. So saying I'm going to turn off auto, nega- auto negotiation is kind of defeating one of the whys. <laughs> like, why would we need to do that? Right. So there may be some other root cause that's causing it too. Yes. But I. And I, I, I but I, I'll tell you what that is. It's that you may have a you know a low quality link, is is one possibility. But these are all like local links in this case. I mean, sure. in the case of like a WAN, all bets are off. I agree. But in well, the case of like you're in the yeah, same yeah, data, you're in the same, the same hardware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're always talking about a LAN. Um, 
But it seems to me that the whole reason auto negotiate exists is that you can have a port where arbitrary equipment can be plugged in that might not have a card that supports the higher speeds. As long as you have, you know what physical piece of equipment is always attached to that port, and it's always high speed, which it always is because nobody's even using 100 megabit either anymore. It doesn't even but, exist. But let me give you an example. Like our switch does not have an auto setting for gigabit. I mean, there is no there is no fixed gigabit. There is only auto 110 mm-hmm. because the the what? protocol for gigabit. Well, really? that's the thing. Okay, the auto-negotiation protocol between 10 and 100 was kind of sketchy. So when they went to gigabit, they kind of redid it from scratch. Oh, okay. The gigabit negotiation protocol is, like, fairly robust from what I'm reading. And if that doesn't work, then, then you have again, it's problem. symptomatic of deeper problems that you really should look at. And yeah. plus, on our switch, we literally, it's, it's not even an option. And they were saying on some net- networking hardware, that's just the way it is. I mean, you, you, have, you have auto... Hundred or ten; those are your options, and that's that's the case on our switch. So you have to use auto. You have to use auto. Um, now we're kind of defining this at the moment by by setting the uh, the server network cards to fixed, and then leaving the switch on auto. But that's supposedly a bad idea. So now already- I, I feel like you're there's there's a confusion going on here between the illustration I used as to how we came to as to how we did five wise in our environment. And then you're saying, well, FiveWise doesn't work because I have a different illustration in which I no 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 no. I'm not saying no no no. I'm not saying FiveWise doesn't work. What I'm saying is you did you didn't needed six wise. Why one of your whys should have been why isn't auto working? Because auto, particularly in the the era of gigabit, which is like the new auto, it is it is right here. It's the fourth one, two, three. It's my fourth why. But why immediately go to oh we should have turned off auto? I mean that's why. uh, Why 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 is that an option? Um, because they know they they know what kind of switches they have in production, and that that is what they should have done in their in their production environment. Uh, it's just that but they just threw a switch out instead topic. of. Well, there probably is for this particular type of switch in this particular. I mean that's okay. that. I mean that's not descri- described in in my article because that's the you know the network administrators here at Fog Creek just you know when they figured that out they were like oh that's because X is Y, and they may have been right or may have been wrong, but they were f- definitely following the right process. I think. Yeah, like well, I, I think not, I think if, the, discounting if, if the issue the, had like, actually been that they shouldn't use auto negotiate, I think they would have probably discovered that 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 wasn't the right thing. Well, I think that's a why. To me, and they actually talk about speed and duplex mismatch. So I think they were actually saying that the port was in. A, in our case, it's a little bit different. I'm reading reading my firewise. Is our switch our, our switch put the port in a failed state, which means the switch decided I cannot use this port. It has failed. No communication happens on it at all which is different than what you saw, which is slow down. Well, actually, that is what we saw. The port doesn't work at all. And oh, really? It, yeah, it's, it's, fixed, it's fixed to a, a fixed rate, but it doesn't communicate with anything. And actually, rebooting requires, it causes it to blue screen. So it was pretty severe, actually. And we, we still haven't fully gotten to the bottom. I mean, I agree with tweaking some settings just for the sake of troubleshooting. Yeah. But I was surprised there was not at all agreement that you know, turning off auto-negotiation is the right solution. Okay, Which, you know, well, actually, uh, that does illustrate something. Remember how I talked about how we run Stack Overflow like a membrane, where we sort of <laughs> let some of the community have input on some of the things that we're doing. 
Um, I kind of get a sense with Fog Creek. Sometimes it's more of like a brick wall between you and customers. Like you wouldn't. Well, let <laughs> right. me give you an example. You wouldn't. Yeah. The, the thing that we did, which was say, is this even correct to be auto? Right. We put that to the community. Yeah. I don't think you guys at Fog Creek would do that. You would just make a decision and then go with it, which is no, not that's wrong. Not true. Just... They, 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 well, I mean, it's not put it to the community, but if a developer or system administrator doesn't know what to do here, they go and they post on some discussion group somewhere like Stack Overflow or Serverfault, and then the people answer and then they read the answers. They don't have to put it. We don't have to put it to the Fogbugs users of the world saying, "Oh, help us, Fogbugs users! You people who are paying us a fortune, please help <laughs> us figure out how to get our network switches to talk to one another, because we are in, in you know, hopeless boobs <laughs> who know nothing, and all that money that you're paying us to supposedly be experts on hosting your." No, well, they do what everybody else does in the world, which is they post on discussion groups, they read on the internet, they call the vendors and ask them. And we don't true. forget that I we have. We're also, a lot of times, you know, there are people that you can ask that know this stuff. Like You, you may not have people you can ask that know this stuff. But if you're using, uh, you know, switch equipment from a, from a, from a high-end vendor, not stuff that you bought at, at uh, you know, on Amazon and you just ordered whatever home Lynx's router, which is what we used to use in the very, very old days. But, I mean, if you're using legit high-end networking equipment and you're interfacing with the legit high-end networking equipment of your co-location center or whoever or your ISP, and and that's where the problem actually was. Um, you know, these are things that it's probably even documented somewhere. Like there might actually but be see, this a is, manual. This is, no, this is what read. I'm talking about. This is the brick wall. This is the appeal to authority. This is, you know, we're, we know better than you kind of thing. Why? Which I don't entirely agree with. You, wait, if there's a manual that says when you buy such and such equipment, go and set this thing to this. And then you don't follow the instructions that are printed in the documentation. I'm just making up that there's documentation. So in this mythical world, when you had all Apple equipment that has all Apple APIs and all Apple code, and you just follow the Apple directions, I mean, does that even exist in the well, real world? Uh, it, surprisingly, it does. On when you're buying high-end networking equipment, yes, there are there are but ways those, that this stuff is. Those need and to you, talk you to server. You have to do that first. You have to do that first, and then if it doesn't work, then you start appealing to all kinds of like you know weird voodoo people what the people say on server fault what they vote up because the people are popular and they wrote with bullet points and so forth but i mean to some extent you got to follow you got to rtfm first and because sometimes it says in there here is best practices for such and such and some of these things like 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 how to set your port switches as my understanding are relatively well understood by network administrators who have been working in the field i may be wrong yeah. i may be, it may be completely wrong but but uh it sounds like you're you're um, you're you're saying that there's something special about the way that Stack Overflow. When we have a problem, we just open it up to the community and let them help us. And that's just every single person that types something into Google or goes to Stack Overflow or Serverfault is opening it up to the community and letting them help us. And we do that just as much as anybody else does. There's no like secret like I refuse to look on the internet for an answer to my question or I refuse to post a question because it's ever so secret what we do here. We just we just go into a room with one other person and try something. That's not the case at all. Nobody does that. Right. Well, I, I get your point about, you know, you're selling a product and the people buying your product aren't, aren't developers. I mean, in, in a sense, we have it, it easy because we're developing for the audiences of the thing it is that we're creating. Yeah. Right? So there's I mean, the main difference is that synergy. we don't believe that our paying customers have an obligation to help us get our basic shit together. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get our shit together. Don't worry. It's not that, not that we'll... We'll try to do it on our own. You know, we'll ask the community if we don't know how something works. But usually the answer is out there. The Google has the answers, and you can usually kind of make things work. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a. I think I'm a little bit more willing to to show the things that I don't know, and I find that people will help you in that in that area. If you do it. Not, once again, I'm not saying that we're not willing to show the things that we don't know. I'm just saying that we don't go post on the Fogbugs blog. Hey, do any of you know how to turn on a? You know, we go to the we go to server fault and ask questions. Right. No, that's good. Well, it, and so coming back to Five Wise, so I'm yeah. not in any way. I, I think Five Wise has great value, but I just I was surprised sure. when I dug into it that there was actually a hidden why that you guys weren't kind of asking that. Well, I you just sort of went to a different answer, on. actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. You should read those responses. There's some pretty compelling evidence there that auto is is in fact the correct setting, and anything other than that is is masking other problems. So. I can see why people would think that. Yeah. So just something to think about because when I, cause when I went into it, I was like, oh, yeah, five wise, this totally makes sense. And I was like, oh, it's obviously this because Joel already figured it out. And I then I dug it into out. it. I was like, well, I just cut and paste. I didn't, I didn't even write these, these five whys. I just cut and pasted this. Michael came up with this list. He's, our, he's a network <laughs> administrator, Michael Gorsuch. I was like, this is a solved problem. And then I dug into it. I was like, wow, there's actually another why here that Joel didn't ask. And I was like, I was just surprised. That's all. I think I might have actually even edited one thing in his uh, post just to make it clearer. And just leave out some unnecessary things, undistractions for people like you who would read this article and think that it was all about auto negotiation for switches. <laughs> well, oh, Joel wrote an article about it, turning off auto negotiate. <laughs> well, it's about how many whys to ask and which ones are appropriate. I was just surprised that my whys were different than your whys. Right. I guess you have a different the world problem, is. is the answer. Next. Yeah. Yes. So, do we have any uh, listener questions this week? Also, this was two years later. State of the art may have changed. That's true. Uh, That's true. Gigabit was still around then. Yeah, let's take a listener question here from Allison. Hi, my name is Allison. I have a question following up on the interview discussion from the last podcast. Uh, I work closely with hardware and firmware, and I have trouble figuring out how to showcase my work to outside employers and colleagues, mainly because the software that I write, while the code can be examined, doesn't actually do anything interesting without the underlying hardware. I could show people videos and screenshots and give them user testimonials, but I'm not sure that any of it's very convincing without uh, seeing a demonstration. And so I'm curious what kind of portfolio you think might present that work uh, most effectively. Thank you. Bye. See, I snuck up on you because I actually, I actually heard this before. So I actually have kind of an, a, one, one idea for an answer, Allison. Um, and that is, can you take, and I mean, it sort of depends on what kind of hardware you're doing. Obviously, if it's for satellites, uh, you probably can't do this. But the idea is to take, you know, one piece of hardware. It's a certain amount of showmanship that goes into making a portfolio or whatever. But, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you walked into an interview and you had one of these devices with you in your pocket, let's say it's a phone, and you pull it out and you're like, check this out, it's a phone, bleep, 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 I worked on the firmware for this phone. And to some extent, you're being uh, honest and saying, you know, I really just worked on the I.O. device that handles the blah, 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 and the DSP chip with the shmigegi. Um, and, and you're showing an iPhone and it's like cool and it's got gestures and stuff like that. Um, but on the other hand... What what you're trying to do is kind of the, the the whole point of the portfolio is to kind of market yourself, and that means driving home something almost at an emotional level, not at a logical level, right? If somebody's interviewing you, if they're trying to decide whether to hire you, if they're looking at your portfolio, they're not looking to evaluate all the work that you've done in your entire 23-year-old, 23, 23 
your career uh, and, and, and decide if, if, if it's good or not. Although they will try to do something, you know, in a, in a kind of a shortened way. Um, that's what they think they're doing. What they're really doing is trying to actually uh, decide whether or not you're a good programmer. And, and they're going to do that uh, sometimes in kind of a messy way. I, I almost, when I think about code samples, I almost can't imagine, like, what, are, what would even be a good code sample? Do you really expect people to read all that code? 90% of the code that I write is just so boring. It's just so, there's nothing about it that looks like good code or bad code, except that it's all indented well. So, uh, to some to some extent, I think the answer is try to figure out if there's one device you can bring in that's kind of awesome uh, and show one thing, even if that's not the thing that you worked on. And you can say, this isn't what I worked on. I worked on the whatchamacallit of this cool device that does such and such. And uh, and you'll kind of have that it's it, that, that marketing impact, right? Like think about like how would you market milk? You're not going to market milk by 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 talking uh, you know, you're not going to have an advertisement for milk that you're going to market by talking about how it has calcium that gives you strong bones and then showing statistics of all the people that drank milk and, and how much healthier they were than the people that didn't drink milk. You're just going to show good-looking people drinking milk. And you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to market yourself. And so uh, uh, the idea is to uh, do whatever you can to <clears throat> basically demonstrate some cool stuff uh, uh, that you've done um, kind of indirectly, just by showing some emotional impact. Just, just, just take one device uh, that you can bring with you. If you can't do that, then you know pictures and, and descriptions and stuff like that. And just think about the kind of stuff. You know, it, it's kind of weird, but people when they're looking at portfolios, when they're looking at code samples and stuff like that, uh, they're they're at that at that phase in 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 in, in reviewing your application. They're really just trying to decide whether to bring you into the next stage. And uh, what you want to do there is kind of stand out. So imagine that your resume, your portfolio, your CV is standing amongst nine or, or, or ten others. Uh, you know, what, what are the bright, shiny lights that you can put, put on it, uh, beacons that will um, make employers get excited? And certain things like, all right, you say firmware, and you, that may not be that interesting, but if you say, you know, I, you know, I, I worked on code that is you know, running in devices that 100,000 people have purchased or a million people are using, um, that's kind of like a big, bright, shiny light. Well, that's great advice. That's all, that's all I got. Is it's it's, 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 it's kind of like marketing. Um, I think, uh, Allison, you're, you're taking a very honest approach, which is the engineer's approach, which is like, I need to prove to you that the code that I wrote is valuable and interesting. Um, but Honestly, at this point, no, you don't. You just need to make a little splash here. Uh, make something sh bright and shiny so everybody says, ooh, I want to look at the bright and shiny thing instead of looking at all that other drab long lists of keywords with the Java and the J2EE J and the Enterprise Beans and whatever. Uh, you know, so you well, want to say, I, I worked about, on a satellite. Well, I think you've got to consider your audience. I mean, how technical is the audience going to be? Certainly, initially, it's going to yeah. be probably not programmers, right? Yeah. HR and, yeah, and it, management. Even if it is programmers, this isn't the stage at which you're proving that you know how to be a programmer. That's going to happen. You know, they'll interview you and they'll ask you and they'll want to, and, and you know, you may be able to show them code samples later on uh, that show that you know how to write code and you may program during the interview if they're doing a good job. But mostly for that initial like screening phase, um, you're still in the marketing phase where it's like, think of an advertisement in a magazine in no case in, there is absolutely no situation. Just go buy a copy of, of Vanity Fair magazine. There is not a single advertisement in there 
that relies on a fact-based <laughs> method, right. reality-based method for convincing you to purchase the thing. And that's the position you're in. You're all about like the positive associations, the interesting associations. Look at this interesting thing that I worked on. Isn't this neat? Yeah, well, I think the, the general tone of the advice is don't get too detailed too early either. Right. I mean, you want to stay with the, the sort of big picture, cool, fun, interesting, and then as you start drilling into it more, have stuff to pull out to show for people that need to see that level of detail. Yeah. I can, even thing imagine, I, I can even imagine like a pretty cool CV. I don't, I don't know. We can't quite do this at Stack Overflow CVs, but like an online portfolio or an online website where you actually have like little photographs of the various things that you've worked on and, you know, with like little arrows pointing to them and saying, you know, blah, 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 this was a device that did such and such and this was a, you know, cell phone and this was a satellite and this was a fire truck. And, and you got a picture of a fire truck zooming by and, and it's kind of cool. It's actually kind of creative and it's like, hey, she worked on some neat stuff. Right. Well, I, I, I think that's a great point. And I think it gets to just having it, something that's interesting and showing that you, you're actually engaged and interested in what you're doing. You're not just going to put a bunch of keywords on a form. You're going to go the extra mile and make it look cool, mm-hmm. you know, and make it interesting and fun and, and just be excited about it. I mean, honestly, a lot of times, particularly when you're, you're doing that initial pass of like, is this someone that I want to work with? Is this someone that, you know, gets this thing that we're doing? A lot of it's, you know, enthusiasm uh, tied with uh, being able to show evidence of your enthusiasm not mm-hmm. just enthusiasm that doesn't go anywhere but enthusiasm that results in look i built this thing let me show it to you mm-hmm. right um even if it's just pictures of it like you're saying so I, I think that's great advice now one thing i want to riff on is um on podcast uh, 79 we talked you talked about how useless take-home programming tests were for interviewing yeah do we get any feedback were, on that well there was a neat comment that somebody put down about um how they had done one of those and uh, because they cited their sources and sort of explained how they researched their answer, mm-hmm. it actually ended up being kind of, I thought, useful because it wasn't about, oh, can you solve this? It was showing your process of like how you research something that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and he cited all his sources. He used Google and Wikipedia, and he actually got the job because he cited his sources. That doesn't mean that it was a good interview question. <laughs> that just meant it was a good candidate faced with a well, terrible interview question who did a great job of basically ha- nailing like 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 really nailing uh, a, a, a a stupid interview question yes by basically overdoing it you know just 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 and and if anything it sounds to me like it's not just how he did his uh research it's that he kind of oversolved the problem in a way that probably nobody else did showing that he's a hard worker who gets things done well, I agree with that, but I think what you're also seeing is the point of like observing people. You said the the best thing to do is actually observe people, try to do the work, and mm-hmm. and what you're getting out of that is what is their process like? Does it take days to get anything done? Is it really fast? Is it dynamic? You know, mm-hmm. how, how do they go about solving problems? It's the the process that you want to observe, and I think people documenting like how they got to an answer is actually mm-hmm. kind of hard to cheat on, right? Because it also shows like how efficient you are at finding information, which is kind of like the currency of of the internet now <laughs> uh, i know but you can't you just pay pay your your, your dude in, in in mumbai to do that for you not necessarily i mean you'd be <laughs> surprised i mean you would think okay it's really easy to find things on google right but i've been able to find things that nobody else could find i mean it was out there but i, I either it was just i was persistent or i just knew the right keywords or, i mean there, there's kind of an art to, to getting to the answer yeah but yeah, but what i'm saying is that it's possible to cheat because you're not doing it in front of them yes that's always possible but i i guess i was just pointing out that it's not there was an interesting upside to this that I hadn't considered, which sure. is 
documenting how you do the work can be kind of interesting. It can kind of turn something that seems totally useless, you know, here's your take-home programming problem, this is a giant waste of time, to something that's actually mildly useful. I mean, I don't know. Uh, now, I'm not saying yeah. I would go out and do it, but... Almost anything, almost anything that you encounter in the process of applying for a job or getting a job, there is a chance to blow them away by doing 20% more than they're actually asking for. And that may mean formatting something a little bit nicer. If they ask you to submit a code sample, you know, submit, submit it in, in formatted code. Make all the comments italic. Put nice headings. You know, submit a nice PDF. Submit it as a compilable project. Submit it for Windows, Unix, and Mac. Submit it. You know, there's always a way to do 20% more than they're asking for. And that's, that's almost always the best way to stand out, especially if they're evaluating 14 of these. Um, we get, uh, just to give you another random example, somebody who we made a job offer to recently, uh, in their cover letter, included an XKCD cartoon that they oh. had rewritten. <laughs> wait, wait. That they had okay. rewritten. That they had changed the words to be appropriate to their situation. That's cool. So, That's cool. Uh, um, you know, there's, 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 always, there's always like, look, I put 20% more work into this than you would have expected. And if you do that, I guarantee that you're going to be in the top 3%. And it, it is going to stand out. I mean, it's an almost, you know, for sure way to uh, impress somebody if they're giving you little projects to work on at home or if they're just even asking for a cover letter and a resume. Um, like I say, we reject people all the time because their cover letters look generic and we're just afraid that they're applying to 1,000 jobs. And that's usually a sign that either they can't get a job and that's why they have to apply to thousands of jobs or that even if they do, if they can get a job, that if we make them an offer, they won't take it because they'll have so many other offers. So I want to see a letter, you know, I want to see a cover letter that says, hi, Joel, I've been reading Joel and Tom for three years and blah, 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 blah. And I think Fog Creek would be perfect for me because my family's in New York and I don't sick and tired of Silicon Valley. And I heard your thing on podcast number 81 about being a tester and it just totally rang true. That's what I want to do. It occurred to me that this is my one way to get into Fog Creek. And I see a cover letter like that and I'm like, yes, you get it. You're, this is the only job you're applying for. And, and we'll give you the same amount of, you know, respect of, of looking a lot more closely at your resume and your qualifications it's because you've done 20% more than anybody else to apply for this job. So that always works. Another listener question? I got one for you, Jeff. Yes, do it. Hi, Jeff and Joel. This is John Sonmez. I recently started a programming blog, and I wanted to get your inputs on whether or not uh, you thought it was important for uh, experienced developers to have their own blog and also uh, what are some good ideas or good ways to get your blog marketed. Uh, I've been trying to write posts uh, about three times or more a week. Uh, my blog is at uh, simpleprogrammer.com, and it is called uh, Making the Complex Simple. Uh, thanks, and I would appreciate uh, your input. And there's a nice, well, think, uh, there's a big yeah. cake there on that. Yeah. Well, I think what you should do is like get your blog mentioned on a podcast that a lot of people listen to. Maybe episode eighty. That would probably be the first step. <laughs> but you know, I think he should he should invert the title. It's it's making the simple complex because I think that's a more realistic sort of viewpoint of what it is we do as programmers. That's true. You know, making the complex simple is is a cliche almost. Yeah, making. <laughs> <laughs> Making the simple complex is, uh, I think, funnier, and, and it's actually kind of what we do <laughs> accidentally a lot. Um, so I, I think he's done the first part right, which is I, the very first thing you got to do before you even think about this stuff is uh, set a schedule. I mean, if you're going to do it, set a schedule and stick to it. it. Doesn't have to be a really aggressive schedule, but until you can do that, it's it's not even worth 
time to huh? talk about it with anyone. Hmm. Just set a schedule uh, and write posts on that schedule fairly reliably. Uh, that that's step one, and then I think uh, maybe let's take a step back and think about why you would even want to do this at all. Yeah, and I, and and I think you you got to look at it kind of like you're. Let's go back to the old computer scientist. Although I don't think we're actually you want scientists. people to recognize you at JFK Airport when you're. <laughs> I think you want to have a research notebook for your science that you're practicing, and it's very crappy science because that's all I do. You know, the, my programming is very very crappy science, but still, it's interesting to me. You know, because I have problems, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to document those problems in a way that I can find the answer later. I mean, I do this all the time, and I remember my previous job. Uh, the CEO remarked, he's like, wow, he's like, Jeff, you're always like citing your blog. You're like going to look up your blog when you're talking to me because you, you know, it, to me, it's just like, it's like my backup brain. It's like the things that I want to remember for later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to wait for the internet to do it for me. I want to do it uh, because, you know, I feel like sometimes it's really easy. I don't know if I mentioned this as a programmer. It's funny how often it's like you're flipping all these, these bits in, in, a, in a big, long uh, uh, set of data and you flip enough of these bits and eventually you end up with these choices that you make in your code and your, your approach and the things that you're doing and it's just it's, it's continually amazing to me how often you end up in these areas where nobody else is in the world you would think it's like how uncommon is it to do x y z you know these four or five things that i made choices on and all of a sudden you're off in the weeds and almost nobody in the world is doing the stuff that you're doing uh, so although it may seem like, oh, I'm just doing you know, .NET code or Java code like everybody else, there's so many, it's like fractal, the detail level. You know, there's, there's so many nooks and crannies and you know, levels of detail that you can get into that, yes, you, you will be able to write about things that I, I think add value to the larger internet. Like somebody else is going to have that specific problem that you had um, or, in, or go about their code in the same way that you have, and they're going to find your blog entry. So even though you're writing for yourself, I think you, that, that has to be the goal. It's your research notebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can find the things that you've done later and, and benefit from them. Uh, but also other people can. So you're sort of contributing to this trail of breadcrumbs uh, where other programmers can benefit in some small way from your work. And, you know, that was also the philosophy behind Stack Overflow. If, if you don't want to start a blog and you have a question, you have a problem, ask it on Stack Overflow. And then that way it's out there in the public and you don't have to go through all the tedium of starting a blog. Right. But I certainly encourage people to do it if, if you have an interest in it and you think it would uh, benefit you professionally. And, you, and, and really, honestly, you've got to have the time to do it. Uh, coming back to the first thing I said, uh, if you don't have the time, then it's it's not even realistic to 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 start thinking about it. So chop that block of time off first before you decide if you're going to be serious about it. It's probably uh, it's probably okay not to. I mean, I'm going to take a contrary view here. It's probably okay not to publish on a regular schedule, but to merely publish when you have something interesting to say. Um, but then again, I, I mean, I, I think Jeff's approach is kind of like this is your personal exploration. If you're writing the same, the real question is. Jeff, if there was something that had already been said a hundred times on the internet, you would post about it, and I wouldn't. <laughs> that's a, that's sort of the difference between our two philosophies. Which is, that but wait, wait, wait. Of, let me let me interject. So, I, yeah. Seth Godin has a great, and you love Seth. Talks about that's the value true. of repetition. Okay. First of all, I mean, just because you've written about something once doesn't mean it's the canonical version, and well, everybody's there's certain, that. there's certain things that are already kind of pretty well known. Like if I were to write a rant against, I don't know. Uh, the fact that make files are dependent on tabs versus spaces that that wouldn't be that interesting everybody knows that everybody's angry about that it's it's done we've been there we've seen that experienced programmers certainly have i could contribute you know article number 43 on that exact subject uh but 
what I'm trying to do, what I try to do actually is like, I'm going to wait until I have something kind of original to say uh, or something that I just don't see anybody saying. Everybody's analyzing this particular thing and nobody has noticed the, follow, you know, the following thing that I think is true. Well, certainly I don't want to encourage people to be uh, an echo chamber, but I think, uh, I guess you got to think of this more as like entertainment where there's a lot of comedians working. And yeah. There's a lot of jokes on the same topics. There are. That can be delivered in completely hilarious ways, even though it's... <laughs> You know, I mean, there's, again, the fractal nature of some of these topics. And I think it, it forces you to become a better writer. You've got to be entertaining as well. I mean, somebody could write a technically accurate article, the best possible arg- article on tabs versus spaces. You could write a hilarious article on tabs versus spaces that people are going to learn from. This is like edutainment, right? I mean, there's an educational part of this that's a critical. It's not just har, har, har. It's like, oh, har, 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 and by the way, you just learned something. Um, so there's a way of delivering it that I think is is entertaining and some people are going to find your article and some people are going to find the dry and boring article about tabs versus spaces Mm -hmm. um so i think you know it also teaches you like what does it actually take to stand out from the crowd i mean one you should try to you know this is where i talked about fractal level fractal level of details like try to specialize and go into the areas that you're specifically working in don't write about broad topics that everybody's talked about don't write about what's in today's news you know, try to go off the beaten path and come up with something somewhat original and interesting. I mean, that's certainly the subtext. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I don't want to come across as like encouraging people to write just for the sake of, you know, writing whatever you can. You want to write something interesting, unique, and, you know, useful ultimately. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you don't do that, you know, people aren't going to come to your, find your information anyway. If you aren't adding any value, it's just going to stagnate. Uh, I guess that was an implicit thing that sure. I didn't feel like I needed to say, but maybe we should. I mean, maybe that's it's only fair to warn people that, you know, if you're not going to write something at least a little interesting and useful, then, you know, you probably can't expect it to do too well in the long term. Uh, my feeling is that whatever whatever you write, you should at least have the ambition that it should be on the first page of Google results for that question. So if you're going to write about how to make chocolate-covered strawberries – you, you, your ambition should be at least that your article about chocolate-covered strawberries is at least good enough to be in the top 10, the first page of Google results for somebody right. that has just typed chocolate-covered strawberries. Oh, you're going to write the crap out of that article. You're yeah. going to write the best chocolate-covered article strawberries. about that anyone be, has ever seen. Yeah, as narrow as you want, but, but at least you should have the ambition not to just write another Me Too article about you know, different kinds of cocoa and blah, 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 blah. And that may mean you pick something a little narrower. And it may mean, you know, but you should at least have the, 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 the goal of writing. And it may mean you're, you're inventing something. You're, you're just inventing a whole new concept, which is, uh, Lord knows I've done that enough, where I've just basically invented a word and said, I have just noticed that there's such a thing as a duct tape programmer. And then I define that. And then at least if, if I own the Google search term for duct tape programmer, that's because I invented that. That's my concept of a particular type of programmer. No, I, I think that's great to bring up. And I think some of this, I, it, I have blind spots where I just, I don't even like to write about things unless I can make it, you know, you're telling a story. And mm-hmm. I think that's something eventually you sort of get good at when writing a blog tree is like you're telling a little story and that's how you're making it interesting. Um, and that's, I think, a lot harder to learn. But I think that's where, it's just like anything else where you, you really got to keep doing it to get better at it. But there is a mindful part of it where as you do it, you yeah. look at it and say, well, how can I do this better the next time? How that's can true. I make this a more interesting better article. This story can be so simple. This is something that uh, Ira Glass has a great thing about story, storytelling, a great video about how Ira Glass does story. If you search Google for Ira Glass, I-R-A-G-L-A-S-S, uh, storytelling, 
telling. Uh, it's a series. There's a series of videos you can you can watch that are kind of amazing. But here's what he says. Ira Glass says, "You you imagine this for a second. You, you wake up in the middle of the night. Something is not right. You heard a noise or something. You get up out of bed. You start walking down the stairs. That's it. <laughs> I'm gonna stop with that." <laughs> I was actually spellbound, Joel. It's like, yes, what's going to happen? Exactly. There's no. There was actually no story there, but I was telling it like a story. I mean, there was stuff happening. There was progress. Ira Glass explains it a lot better than I do. So go check out that video. But that's the the essence of a story is that, and I, I've done this all over the place. Is that you can tell uh, a- anything in in terms of uh, a story, and the story does not have to be prima facie interesting. It, it can actually seem kind of stupid, but you're telling it in the format of a story, and that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes people uh, become interested. And I, I would also, don't get discouraged, because a lot of the information out there on the Internet is so bad that all it takes to do a better article on X is, like, trivial. I mean, like, so many times I'll, I'll come across some bit of information. It's like, man, I could, I could write this way better yeah. if I had, like, two or three hours to sit down and write this. I could make this so much clearer, add some graphs, you know, get rid of all this extraneous verbal noise. Right. Um, so it's really pretty easy to find a piece of information and say, you know what, I'm just going to repackage this, add my own spin to it. Like, do add something. Don't just repackage. That's boring. Add some, you know, little bit of unique value to it and repackage it in a more interesting, more useful way. Some I mean, the, this uh, is yeah. how evolution happens. Some of the most interesting things I came up with is when I had to do, like, three weeks of research to figure out something, and the ultimate answer was to get a Lamarzoka FB70 linear or whatever that espresso machine is we just got. But that was like a, you know, that was like weeks of research. Then you, you can tell that, you know, that's the perfect blog post. That's the ultimate. Like, you too can do all this research and spend a week doing it, or you can read my elegant article, which I did not write, about how to buy an espresso machine for the office. It's and even if you're old. That, Even if your article kind of sucks, like, and I think yeah. Steve Yegi, sorry to interrupt, but I, but I think this is an important point. The act of just writing it down will make you better at X. I swear to God, it's true. Whatever it is that you're trying to learn, even if your article sucks, if you sit down and try to write about it, you will understand more about X at the end than when you started. I mean, it's just amazing how often that happens. So that's that's also why I get I you know urge people to just like make it a habit. It's like exercise. Just write about what you're doing. So and in conclusion, you are bullish on blogs. Uh, I'm bullish on just the mechanical act of, of writing, setting a schedule. You yeah. know, I, I do think you have to be mindful about it. You've got an absolute good point about that. Don't be part of the echo chamber and try to do it in a good, you know, constructive way. But I think the important thing, I really got to come back to this, is just committing to a schedule and just doing it uh, consistently. You know what? Uh, if, you really want, if you really want people to follow your blog, you just got to write something about Jason Calacanis and Michael Arrington and just make it like, Jason Calacanis is a big, fat <laughs> idiot and Michael Arrington is his love slave. Uh, well, this is why I love programming blogs because we can talk about like concrete things. We don't have to be like nine hundred two one zero drama. Right, right. No, <laughs> but know? we do just as much of that. That stuff. Oh my God, does some, that sell? Some of that oh, stuff. That, if you can put conflict in the title, if you can figure out a way to say that something is the worst or the most idiotic or disaster, the fiasco, <laughs> the Fog Creek fiasco, <laughs> Stack Overflow fail. Wait, wait. What's You're going to get – just, make, just make it Stack now. Overflow fail. Make that your headline. Figure out how to fill in the words below that. And the other day I was using Stack Overflow and I get the wrong answer and it hadn't been voted up. And uh, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll zoom to number one on all the popularity charts like Progit and Programming Reddit and uh, news.hackernews.ycommonair.com. And um, uh, it's a shame, but you get probably like a 300% bonus for conflict in the title. You're, you're teaching people bad habits, Joel. It's a terrible Although, habit. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And, uh, but I <laughs> click on those things first. 
Because I'm like, yay, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. <laughs> Check it out. That's, the people have evolved. If there's a fight going on, you need to be aware. So yes. you think, right? I mean, that is, you, you, you have to have evolved so that if there is a fight in your environment, that is the most important thing for you to pay attention to right now because it could what? spill over yeah. and they could knock over your espresso cup. Okay, well, I think you should aim higher. I think you should aim for entertainment, but not necessarily pander to the degree that Joel is describing. Well, I, I'm uh, not saying that you should do this. I'm just saying that this is how you become popular, because that was a part of the question. Yes, I suppose it was. I don't do that. God forbid. Boy, you know what? My number one article was how Microsoft lost the API war. That was a great article. That's still a great article. That's one of. That's but I mean, a it was class. about conflict. There was a war, and they lost. But, I th- but there were why. valuable points underneath. It wasn't just ranting. It, yeah. w- it had a basis in fact. I mean, I think that that's what makes it okay. It's like you had researched it. You had, you had things you could cite, examples. Yeah. It wasn't just like, boy, Microsoft really sucks. <laughs> uh, and, and, and let me give you an example. And I know we covered this on a previous podcast, but there was an article about how to get Stack Overflow rep really quickly, how to game the Stack Overflow rep system. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously it was prevented, presented in a super confrontational way. I don't think he meant it to be, but it really did come across that way. So, of course, it got linked a ton of different places. It got my attention. It got our attention on Meta and Stack Overflow. Um, but even though it was kind of inflammatory, it brought up some real issues with the way that we did stuff sure. on Stack Overflow. Yeah, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to do to get attention when you're, uh, um, you know, if you have a I mean, some good came out of that, even sure. if it was presented, although I, I think he did have somewhat good intentions, but let's say he didn't. He was just an evil person out to attack everything. Something good kind of came of that. It brought sort of shown some light on some edge conditions. And we actually changed, like, uh, right. the sorting. We sort randomly by vote now, which we didn't do before. And a bunch of other sort of interesting good things came out of that. So even if sometimes you do do that, I think as long as your goals are, look, I just want to... Get, you know, bring in attention to this important issue so it gets resolved. And I think, like that thing I wrote about Gruber, I think that was certainly my goal. Is like, let's just fix the root problem. And uh, you know, sometimes you got to pull some strings or you know, pull people's chain a little bit to get enough attention on the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't work in Gruber's case, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I tried. Did yeah. you even get a response from him of any way, form, shape, or no. mention on Twitter? Utter, or utter and complete silence, radio which is fine. Silence, I mean, that's, he's, that's, that's fine. I'm not going to nag the guy. I mean, you know, I said my piece, and that's he's it. He's busy shrinking all the fonts on his website, so they'll be even smaller. Yeah. Okay. He's busy you know, following the Yankees. We are just about out of time here. Podcast yes. number 81, I believe. Is yep, that right? 81. Yes, that is correct. Many thanks to those of you who called in with questions. Notice I'm stalling here a little bit because I don't know the Stack Overflow. The questions have been really good recently. I do want to compliment the people calling with questions. Yeah, please. But you know what? We get more when there's a T-shirt. So um, are we going to do do it, Joel? Do it. But I can't. It's just so inconvenient. Oh, but come on. We love our listeners, Joel. Don't we? Don't we we love our listeners? We do. I love our listeners. We love them enough to give them a T-shirt, don't we, Joel? For the for but a good question only. But they're getting a Kiwi t-shirt. They, we need to give them a Stack Overflow t-shirt. Have you made the Stack Overflow t-shirt? Yes, that's totally coming. That's totally coming. Alex is a, totally on top of that. He's okay. got a source. Yeah, so you may even get a Stack Overflow t-shirt. How exciting. Okay, so the, so any questions we pick, the, the, the questions for next week, uh, we'll get a Stack Overflow t-shirt. Hopefully. Depends even on the better. timing, but possibly, yes. Well, you might just have to wait for it, but you will eventually get yeah, it. You might have it. to wait two weeks. Eventually, you'll get it. Sure. I'll so, promise that. So, 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 so put, put, put a question, record it in MP3 or Ogvorbis file uh, format, uh, and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the podcast hotline 646-826-3879. Those are your two choices. 
There is a Stack Overflow transcript wiki where people uh, jot down what we've said as if it were important, but it's actually beneficial to the hearing impaired and the people that don't want to sit around listening to this whole podcast every week and also people that just want to be able to search. And uh, that all happens at the transcript wiki, which is linked to every single week from the show notes, where you'll also find hyperlinks to everything we mentioned on the show. The show notes are located at blog.stackoverflow.com. See you next week. See you next week. Oh, I didn't get to talk about this on the podcast, but traffic is way the hell up. It's actually kind of causing a problem. You know what uh, I thought? Because it, it was way the hell down. Well, the, just the holiday, but it's funny now because, okay, so the I one minute is. Hold on, hold on. Let me, yeah. let me finish my little story, and then you can tell your story. All right. So my little story is, at the end of September, we hit a million page views per day, and that was like sort of the magical, just arbitrary barrier, but we were kind of waiting for it. That was exciting. We are like, wee, yay, party. So that was, the end, that was the very end of September. So October, November, December. November, December traffic is obviously down because, I mean, less people work. There's a lot of holidays, et cetera, et cetera. Not November um, so much, mostly December. But by, so th- last week, we hit 1.4 million yeah. page views. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a 40% increase in three months, right. four, not even four months, of which at least one of those months is basically like a giant holiday. Right. So that's, that's amazing. So if anything, it's like accelerating. So something term- that it occurred to me is that I know that businesses are closed and stuff like that. And it's not as much stuff getting on during the, during the holidays. But it seemed like the effect for that was a little bit too strong, the, the holidays. And then what occurred to me is that it's students taking vacations. So, like, all the students that are on our site asking questions about their homework and, and just, you know, hanging out and just doing coding, <laughs> you know, they, they finish in December, they go mm-hmm. on break, they get back to school in January, but it doesn't start to ramp up. They don't start getting homework assignments until about now. So that's why we're seeing it start to build up again. It's, it's really so We have a big grown. chunk of students, yeah. I mean, our Linux, like, we actually, the Linux kernel crashed on us because we had too many outstanding connections. We had actually gone and tweaked oh, the kernel. Interesting. There are ways to do that, I think. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Do we, are we yeah, no, it totally did because we were like, what the hell happened? And then realized HA proxy fell over because the kernel was like not enough memory for socket connections. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.